morning, everyone. Happy Sabbath. It's good to see all of you here. Uh, we also want to welcome our online viewers, for those of you who are joining us online. Now, uh, before we begin the message for today, I've been instructed to uh, mention to all of you that we have a lunch um, after uh, the service is over. And so we just want to invite you to stay with us and Thank you. <laughs> we just want to invite you to stay with us and, and share a meal, and it gives us a chance to just get to know you better and connect with you. Um, so the introduction to this message is uh, is going to be a little bit different from the norm. It was kind of inspired by a trivia night that we had years ago organized by Simon Michael, and they had this section in the trivia night entitled, Shakespeare or Batman? And what you're going to do is you're going to try and figure out, is the quote on the screen uh, quoted from by Shakespeare or is it quoted from by Batman? So I'm going ha- to ask you guys questions. You'll just raise your hand and then you'll see the uh, answer. Let's see if this works. Okay, Shakespeare or Batman. Here's the first quote. I will encounter darkness as a bride and hug it with my arms. How many of you think it's Shakespeare Right hand, Batman, left hand. Okay, the answer is... 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 Shakespeare, measure for measure. Now, I, I took this quiz online. I got 19 out of 30, so <laughs> let's see how well you guys do. <laughs> that shows how well I know Shakespeare and how well I know Batman. <laughs> All right, here's the next quote. <laughs> Did I finally reach the limits of reason and find the devil waiting? Shakespeare right, Batman left. The answer is... Is Batman in Batman R.I.P. Okay. <laughs> okay. Next quote. Vengeance is in my heart, death in my hand, blood and revenge are hammering in my head. Shakespeare right, Batman left. Okay, the answer is Shakespeare. (laughs) Good job, Micah. All right. Next quote. We die every day a thousand times an hour. Shakespeare right, Batman left. Okay, answer is ah, Batman. Okay. Ah! <laughs> you can see the answers. <laughs> um, should I just forward through the... Uh... Okay. I'm a man of 30, of 20 again. The rain on my chest is a baptism. I'm born again. Shakespeare right, Batman left. Let's see. Batman, Dark Knight Returns. <laughs> okay, second to the last one, I think. Smoldering, I burn you. Burning you, I flare. Hot and bright and fierce and beautiful. Shakespeare right, Batman left. Batman, Dark Knight Returns. <laughs> okay, here's the last one, I think. Peace has cost you strength. Victory has defeated you. 
Peace has cost you strength. Victory has defeated you. Shakespeare right, Batman left. The answer is, trick question, it's Bane in Dark Knight Rises. <laughs> so, rightly or wrongly, the sermon for today is based off of this line. <laughs> and what I want to share today is that Bane highlights this interesting or this profound idea. And the scene goes that in the movie, Batman is engaging in combat with Bane. And um, as they're kind of fighting each other, Batman flicks this switch on the side of his belt and the lights go off. And as uh, Batman circles in the shadows to try and look for a time and a place to uh, strike, Bane turns around slowly and he says... You think darkness is your ally, but you merely adopted the dark. I was born in it. I will show you where I've made my home while preparing to bring justice. And here's what Bain is saying. He's saying, success can cultivate comfort and complacency. And Bruce Wayne only knows success. In, in contrast, adversity can be the birthplace of grit and strength. So today we're going to be looking at the story of Samson, and I'm going to invite you to turn to Judges chapter 13. It's page 213 in the World Changer Bible. 213. Judges chapter 13, we're looking at page 213. And this is where the story of Samson begins. And just to give you some historical context, we find Israel oppressed by the Philistines. And there's a family in Israel who is visited by this supernatural being. And they are told, even though you are not able to have children, you will give birth to a son. And if you're there, we'll look at verse 5 together. Judges chapter 13, verse 5. And the text says, You will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and his hair must never be cut, for he will be dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. He will begin to rescue Israel from the Philistines. So the Bible says that when this child is born, the mother names him Samson. And so Samson is kind of dedicating his whole life to this vow called the Nazarite vow. And if you go to Numbers chapter, six, uh, Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 to 12, this vow is kind of explained in detail. So I'll invite you to turn with me to that passage. It's page 117 in the World Changer Bible. And keep your hand in Judges chapter 13 because the majority of our time will be spent there. So Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 to 12. And I'm just going to summarize a portion of it, and then we're also going to read a large portion of it as well. So if you look and if you start scanning through uh, chapter 6, verses 1 to 12 in the book of Numbers, you'll find that the Nazarite vow consists of three main things. In verse 3, it says, no, uh, 
the person who has taken the Nazarite vow is not supposed to take any wine or anything that is fermented. They are not supposed to take anything from the vine. Um, so, for example, no grape juice, no grapes, no sultanas, no grape seed, no, nothing that comes from the vine. Verse 5, uh, the person who is taking the vow of the Nazarite is not supposed to cut their hair. Uh, there's kind of like this outward uh, communication that they are committing this portion of their lives to God. Um, and then in verse 6, they are not supposed to go near dead bodies. And so if you look at verse 5, I actually want to read um, a significant portion of this vow because this part of the cut, the rules surrounding cutting of hair and not going around dead bodies is a very interesting one, especially in the context of the story of Samson. So we pick up in verse 5, and it says, They must never cut their hair throughout the time of their vow, for they are holy and set apart to the Lord. Until the time of their vow has been fulfilled, they must let their hair grow long, and they must not go near a dead body during the entire period of their vow to the Lord. Even if the dead person is their own father, mother, brother, or sister, they must not defile themselves, for the hair on their head is a symbol of their separation to God. This requirement applies as long as they are set apart for the Lord. If someone falls dead beside them, the hair they have dedicated will be defiled. They must wait for seven days and then shave their heads. Then they will be cleansed from their defilement. So think about the significance of this vow. No parties, no weddings, no funerals, because it's at those places where all these things are done. And so the person who engages in the vow of the Nazarite has a very strict life. They can't even go to their own family's funeral. Now, there's a spiritual reason why death in the Bible is connected to uncleanliness. And because from the biblical perspective, death is a result of sin. And those two can never be separated. And so God's mission on earth is to take away the uncleanliness of the earth. And God is communicating death is not supposed to be something that humans are used to. And that's why we have a natural emotional response to death. And that usually isn't being joyful and happy right? Something in us says, this is not right. And God is communicating, this isn't right. Death is connected to uncleanliness, and hence the importance of Jesus in bringing about the promise of eternal life. So back to the Nazarite vow. The the participant of the vow is not allowed to cut their hair unless they come in contact with a dead body. And so there's that spiritual implication. There's also, I think, a physical hygienic Um, reason as well because if you've got really long hair and you come in contact with something that's dead it's probably pretty unhygienic and so the rule is go shave your head now if you keep reading from verses 10 onward it says on the eighth day they must bring two turtle two turtle doves or two young pigeons to the priest at the entrance of the tabernacle. The priest will offer one of the birds for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. In this way, he will purify them from the guilt they incurred through the contact with the dead body. And so the last part of the vow of the Nazarite is, as the individual uh, shaves their head, they go and offer a sacrifice, and that's supposed to um, cleanse them from that defilement. So going back to Judges chapter 13, verse 5, and I think I've got it on the screen here. Notice here, Samson's mission is to free Israel 
from their oppressors. And so he's this super strong hero type that's basically designed to be a killing machine, right? He's, he's like a biblical superhero, literally. And his job is go be a judge and go beat the enemies. And the contradiction here is that the moment he beats his enemies, he's got to shave his head. But the strength of or the, the secret to his superpower is in his hair. And so the moment he finishes his task, he becomes a normal human being. And that's actually what he's supposed to do. And at first glance, this may seem like an oversight in the vow. Uh, but personally, I think this is a fail-safe for Samson against the pitfalls of success. It's a fail-safe for Samson against the pitfalls of success. And here's what I mean. Let's go back to Judges, uh, the book of Judges. We're going to start in chapter 14, or we're going to pick up in chapter 14. And we'll read through and narrate a good portion of the story. I'm going to ask you to bear with me as there's a fair amount of background that needs to be covered um, to get to uh, the point of the sermon. But Judges chapter 14, and we're going to pick up in verses 1 and 2. And here's what the text says. One day when Samson was in Timnah, one of the Philistine women caught his eye. When he returned home, he told his father and mother, a young Philistine woman in Timnah caught my eye. I want to marry her. Get her for me. You can tell right off the bat that Samson is used to getting what he wants. And if you read the story, his parents object, but he just says, no, I want you to do this. And they kind of, um, they, they follow through with his request. We pick up in verses 5 and 6. It says, As Samson and his parents were going down to Timnah, a young lion suddenly attacked Samson near the vineyards of Timnah. At that moment, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, and he ripped the lion's jaws apart with his bare hands. He did it as easily as if it were a young goat, but he didn't tell his father or mother about it. So here's the first victory that Samson uh, experiences he defeats this lion and there's a peculiarity in the in the story where he leaves with his parents but when he meets the lion he's not with his parents right he kills the lion and he doesn't tell his parents about it and my question is how would the parents not know about that it's kind of a significant event if a lion attacks the traveling party and what's not mentioned here is that samson leaves his parents in the dust he's kind of like you guys are taking too long i'm just gonna go ahead of you and then he meets this lion, and then the thing happens. And in my mind, I'm kind of thinking, are you going to turn around to check to see if there are any other lions that are going to attack your parents? No? Okay. <laughs> and that's kind of that's what Samson does, and you get a picture of his character. If you look at verse 7, the story continues. When Samson arrived in Timnah, he talked to the woman and was very pleased with her. And so there's this time of engagement where Samson is engaged with his, uh, with his future wife. And during the engagement season, uh, he comes across 30 young men from his wife's or his fiance's town. And he kind of has this uh, bet against them. He says, look, I've got a riddle for you. If you figure out the riddle by the time of the wedding, I'll give you 30 changes of clothes. And if you figure out the riddle, then I have to give you 30 changes of clothes. Well, the story continues on that Samson loses the bet. His wife gets the answer from him, and she gives the information to the uh, 30 young men of her town. 
And if you look at verse 19, notice how Samson responds. Verse 19 says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. He went down to the town of Ashkelon, killed 30 men, took their belongings, and gave their clothing to the men who had solved his riddle. But Samson was furious about what had happened, and he went back home to live with his father and mother. So his wife was given in marriage to the man who had been Samson's best man at his wedding. So think about this for a second. Samson commits mass murder after losing a bet. Can you imagine what's going to happen after he figures out he's lost his wife? The story continues on. Samson burns down the grain fields and the vineyards and the olive groves of the area. Imagine someone burning down the Yara Valley. Like, how are people going to respond to that? And in the story, the Philistines are outraged, um, and they respond by burning down Samson's father-in-law's house while his wife and his father-in-law, uh, while his wife and father-in-law are in it. So we continue on, chapter fifteen, verses seven and eight. Because you did this, Samson vowed, I won't rest until I take my revenge on you. So he attacked the Philistines with great fury and killed many of them. Then he went to live in a cave in the rock of Etam. So this starts all-out war against Samson and the Philistines. And at this point, the Philistines gather themselves as an army and they go to Judah and the men of Judah kind of wonder what's going on, and they find out the backstory, and so they find Samson, and they say, please turn yourself in. We need to bind you. And Samson nods his head, and he says, okay, I'll go do this. So we pick up in verse 14 and 15. The story says, as Samson arrived at Lehi, the Philistines came shouting in triumph. But the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Samson, and he snapped the ropes on his arms as if they were burnt strands of flax, and they fell from his wrists. Then he found the jawbone of a recently killed donkey. He picked it up and killed a thousand Philistines with it. There is so much death in this story. It's two chapters, and it's difficult to count the it's difficult to have a body. And here's why. Samson's abilities, they mask his character deficiencies. Because his abilities allow him to basically get whatever he wants, he never addresses the deficiency of his character. His success makes things worse for him and those around him in the long run. I wonder, actually I genuinely think, if Samson would have implemented that fail-safe that's designed in the Nazarite vow, it would have changed the direction of his life. There's a verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. It says, But he said to me, and this is um, uh, um, God speaking to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my faith is rooted in God. But Samson never learns this lesson. If you go to Judges chapter 16 and we look at verse 4, the story continues on and it says, Sometime later, Samson fell in love with a woman named Delilah who lived in the valley of Sorek. Now the Hebrew language is kind of interesting because a lot of times names mean something. And if you look at the name Sorek, it means 
choice vines. It means vineyard. So Samson goes to a vineyard, and he meets a woman named Delilah. And do you know what Delilah's name means? Weak. That's like Superman flying to a planet made of kryptonite to find a life partner, right? And here Samson does that very, very thing. And it's here that Samson gives away his secret. His girlfriend shaves his head while he sleeps. She calls the, Philistine, uh, the Philistines over, and they gouge out his eyes. They put him in prison, uh, and they put him in prison. And here's the end of the story. If we look at verses 21 to 23, Verses 21 to 23. So the Philistines captured him, gouged out his eyes. They took him to Gaza, where he was bound with bronze chains and forced to grind grain in the prison. But before long, his hair began to grow back. We continue on to verse, uh, actually the next verse. The Philistine rulers held a great festival offering sacrifices and praising their god Dagon. They said, Our God has given us victory over our enemy, Samson. Jumping to verse 28 and 29. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me again, O God. Please strengthen me just one more time. With one blow, let me pay back the Philistines from the loss of my two eyes. Then then Samson put his hands on the two center pillars that held up the temple, pushing against them with both hands. He prayed, let me die with the Philistines, and the temple crashed down on the Philistine rulers and all the people. So he killed more people when he died than he had during his entire life. You know, the thing that I find most amazing about the story is how God responds to Samson. God gives so much mercy because Samson gets himself into this trouble, and then God still gives him his spirit. God still gives him his abilities God still gives him his giftedness. And, you know, if Samson would have just taken one moment to think, God, what are you doing in my life? It would have been so incredibly life-changing. But instead, Samson only focuses on what he wants. And even in his dying words, it's about himself. God, give me revenge for the loss of my eyes. It's not really about God Help me to be the ruler and the leader you want me to be so that I can free Israel. That, that's not the motivation behind his act. What I find interesting is that closing statement that says that he kills more people in his death than he does in his life. And there's a strong connection between Samson and Jesus because Jesus has a miracle birth. Samson has a miracle birth. Samson did more in his death than he did in his life. And the impact of Jesus' death does more for the world than he did in his life. There's a strong messianic connection. I'd like us to think about Jesus. If you go to Mark chapter 1, verses 32 to 39, Jesus practices the importance of weakness in his ministry and in his life. Mark chapter 1, verses 32 to 39. Mark is in the New Testament, goes Matthew, Mark. And we're going to be looking at page number 801. There's a professor out at uh, Walla Walla, his name's Troy Fitzgerald, and he writes about the importance of communing with God. And he writes, 
The life-giving power that comes from connecting with God does not happen in a moment of quick reflection before you race out the door. It happens when you walk away completely. When you walk away from work, school, activities, ambitions, demands, and disruptions so you can breathe. And if you look at Mark chapter 1, particularly verse 32 to 39, you find Jesus is engaged in a lot of ministry. He's been casting demons out. He's performing miracles. He's preaching sermons. And crowds of people are chasing after him. This is kind of like a pastor's dream. Go do ministry and have people come to you. You don't have to go to them. It's like Jesus has reached the uh, pinnacle of success for someone who wants to do ministry. But notice what happens in verse 35. In verse 35, it says, Before daybreak the next morning, Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place to pray. Jesus gets up before the sun comes up. He leaves the house to a secluded place, and he communes with God. And if you continue reading through the verse, if you look at verse 36, you'll notice Jesus' disciples, they couldn't easily find him. So he kind of runs away from busyness. He steps away from his work, his friends, his life, and he steps toward God. If you look at verse 37 38, when they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. But Jesus replied, we must go on to other towns as well. And I will preach to them. Uh, I will preach to them too. That is why I came. See, the disciples, they valued busyness because busyness leads to success. That business and success led to more busyness and more success, and you get reputation, you build legacy, you are known in the community. There was so much work to be done, so many sick people to be healed, so many demons to cast out, so many sermons to preach. The world needed saving, and the question is, where is Jesus? off by himself, being inactive, making himself less busy and less successful. And what's the result of this lack of productivity? Less success. And notice what Jesus says. He says, pack your bags, we're moving to the next town. If you've established yourself and you have a reputation in the community, Why would you turn away from all the success? Why would you make yourself mobile and more difficult to be followed and found? And yet Jesus says, my mission is to go to the next town. See, in that moment of solitude, God instructs Jesus on what to do with his busyness and his success. And many times, our success is for us, our reputation, our wealth, our pride. But stepping away allows God to give perspective and instruction. And so Jesus, Jesus' success could be a blessing rather than a burden. See, Jesus' time in prayer allowed God to direct his life from busyness to genuine productivity. And as you practice being weak in your lives, may you find the strength of God. May God bless you.